Welcome to Revitalize Your Relationship. You are listening to episode 73, Mental Load. Hello there, lovers. My name is Erin Aquin, and today I have a treat for you. It is my very special guest, fellow life coach, author, amazing woman. (laughs) Her name is Clotilde. She's going to say her name far more beautifully than me. Clotilde is a coach in France, and most of her work with her clients is done in French. So this is actually a very rare opportunity to listen to her speak if you are an Anglophone like me. So... I hope you will enjoy this podcast. She has so much wisdom on the idea and the concepts around mental load. It's a beautiful conversation, and you may even want to listen to it a few times and take some notes. You are going to learn so much about this concept and, of course, how to shift your thoughts so that you don't allow resentment to poison your relationship, which I think is often at the heart of this. A lot of self-judgment, a lot of resenting our partners happens when mental load is a factor. So we're going to dive right into this episode. And at the very end, I will tell you how you can learn more about Clotilde. If you do not speak French, you can still get her cookbooks. So there's always that. (laughs) All right. I hope you take as much as you possibly can away from this conversation. And like I said, maybe give it a second listen later on. Enjoy. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today and um, get all the wisdom that I can't get from you in French. (laughs) Because even though I'm Canadian, my French is not good. Okay. (laughs) For those of you who don't know Clotilde, I would love to ask you the question I ask everyone to start. Who are you and why should we listen to you? No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So my name is Clotilde Dussoulier. Clotilde Dussoulier. I am French. I was um, born and raised in France. I am um, now working as a life coach. I have had two prior professional careers. I started out as a software engineer for a few years. That was my initial training. And then I switched to um, a career as a food writer. So I had a food blog called Chocolate and Zucchini. I published um, five books about French food, five cookbooks. And I um, took another turn a couple of years ago to become a life coach. And why you should listen to me is that I spend most of my waking hours um, wondering what how the human brain works and I think that I have gathered some insights about that. I definitely agree which is why I wanted to have you on the show Um, and just as an aside my husband wanted me to say thank you so much for all of the work you did in food before you became a life coach. Um, If you guys want a really good cookbook Tasting Paris is one of my favorites. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Just as a plug for something that you can get in English from Clotilde if you are not fluently French. But today, um, it's sort of related to food because it encompasses, I think, a lot of what we do as parents. Um, Today, I wanted to talk to you about mental load. This has kind of become, I think, a new phrase in our current culture. For those of you who don't know, Clotilde, would you mind explaining how you define mental load? 
So for me, mental load is the um, the space in your mind that is occupied with everything that you think you have to do and how you feel about everything that you think you have to do, everything that you have done, everything that you need to do, everything that you think you don't have time to do, and all of the thoughts that you have around things that that keep you busy on a daily basis, and especially things that are part of the routine and the logistics of running a home, running a family, um, and you know those repetitive tasks that that especially as women we take on on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's so beautifully said. Uh, one of the ways that I explain it to people who have no idea what mental load is <laughs> is it's like you're the project manager of your life, your family's life, your household, um, but you don't get paid for this job. That's sort of what it feels like. Yes. And you have no project management skills. Right. Right. You're unqualified. (laughs) But somehow the responsibilities have fallen to you. But I think that's really part of, I think there's a key distinction here is that it's okay to feel like you are the project manager of your family and your home and yourself if you actually take on this responsibility and that you put into place the systems that make it so that you feel successful at this project management, then it's not a problem. It becomes a problem when you feel like the mental load is too much and the emotions that you feel, the feelings that you have about this project management are on the spectrum of what we call negative emotions. And so typically it's resentment, it's stress, it's anxiety, it's anger, it's um, annoyance, it's self-pity, it's um, you know a whole bunch of emotions that most of us don't enjoy <laughs> feeling, and that because most of us don't have tools to understand what's going on, most of us blame it on what needs to be done. Right, right. Yeah, I think um, I, I would love to say that I'm totally free from this <laughs> concept, but I definitely, you know, my kids are both under the age of four. And when I became a parent, suddenly it did feel like all of the stuff to do with them landed right on me. So I I think we are lucky as coaches to have sort of at least an intellectual pathway to understand that nothing's really an obligation. Like ultimately with mental load, it is a, it's a thought, but None of these things are truly obligations. I get so much pushback, and I'm, I'm assuming you do too, <laughs> about that concept. How would you even maybe explain to one of your clients, one of your students, that this construct that we've culturally developed and we call it mental load is totally optional? So I think the way that I approach it is to not necessarily go as fast um, not go straight to the point where we feel fine and amazing and really mm-hmm. light. Right. To spend a little bit more time understanding what exactly creates those feelings and to really separate out what, you know, the, the actual activities that you um, take on on a daily basis, the actual tasks that you accomplish, these do not impact your emotions. It's only what you think about them and the thoughts that you approach them with, the thoughts that you have when you look at your to-do list, the thoughts that you have when you look at 
you know, the crumbs beneath your table, the thoughts that you have when your spouse is sitting on the couch and you are vacuuming said crumbs under the table. (laughs) It's really, it's really the, the first step is to really take stock of all of the thoughts that you have about those tasks and who does what, when, and how often, because this is what creates the pain and the suffering. It's not the spouse. It's not the crumbs. It's not the to-do list. Those are just whatever they are. It's only what we decide to think. And by default, it's more of a, um, it's by default, we tend to have thoughts like, I'm the only one to do this. It always falls on me. Why is it always me? And I'm the only one who does everything around here and I never have time and I'm never going to be able to do everything that I have and I'm always late. And all of this is created. I mean, all of our emotions are created by those thoughts. And until you really understand what your specific thoughts are and how to recognize them, you really have no um, power over the, the the feelings that you that you experience. I think that's so important, and you know, just for everybody listening too, when you hear yourself thinking and speaking in absolutes, those words always, or I'm the only one who ever does this. I'm always the one who cleans up. I'm always the one that makes dinner. It's really important to know that that is just reinforcing the habit of thinking that said negative thought. And it, it's, it's impossible to feel empowered when you've hemmed yourself into that little space. So I I think that's a really important thing to listen for. Those sound like such definitive statements. It's like, I'm always the one. So it's like, okay, end of story. I'm, I'm always the one. And so, and so there's that sense that there is no wiggle room for observing anything different. Your brain has just stopped looking for evidence to the contrary. And your brain will just not notice when it's someone else who does the cleaning, when it's someone else who gets up in the middle of the night, when it's someone else who suggests doing this or that, or actually takes on any kind of responsibility because you have declared that you are the only one doing everything. So yeah, that's a key distinction. Yeah, those declarations I think are, are really tricky. And um, one of the concepts that I talk about, I'm sure you have another way of describing this that would be really interesting to hear if you want to share it. But I kind of talk about it as the brain is like a little hunting dog and you give it a scent and it will always go find the thing it's, that you're looking for. So those declarations are something to definitely be more aware of. And I would love to maybe just hear how you offer that some wiggle room maybe for people to get out of the always and the only and the ever and the never, (laughs) those sort of statements. Right. So I think um, step one of awareness is really, is really key because most of us come to those tools having no idea that our brain has a skewed vision of reality. And so the wiggle room can, can simply be a thought like, I notice that I think I'm the only one doing anything around the house. And I wonder if I really am the only one doing everything around the house. And let me open my mind to look for ways that I am not the only one doing everything around around the house. And just kind of like step by step with those kind of, you know, doubt thoughts or like observation thoughts. Yeah. Trying to, trying to create some wiggle room. Because what I do know from my personal experience is that 
when, especially when there's children involved within a partnership, especially if it's a partnership between two people of opposite sexes, typically the woman will come to um, the adventure of having children with a lot more, um, um, a lot more knowledge, a lot more. Typically, as women, we have been raised to know a lot more about having babies. It's really reinforced during pregnancy, where everything that is offered in terms of information is in the. I mean, addresses like is 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 told to the woman, right. and so once the baby is born, it's really unbalanced because someone has a lifetime of education about babies and and someone else the other person has had zero contact with a baby before and so one person kind of expects the other to kind of step up and there's that imbalance there and it's the same with um you know house cleaning many many men become adults and have never been taught how to, you know, um, do laundry or how to. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, you can despair and you can think, well, they should just pick it up or, but I think it's not fair to, um, and it's not giving them a pass. It's not letting them off the hook. It's just to be like, okay, you know, if, if we're going to be in this partnership and I want the other person to do stuff, I have to let the other person do stuff imperfectly. I can't, I can't imagine that he will, he will, and I'm especially talking about, you know, heterosexual couples, because then the, you know, we have not been socially conditioned with the same, right. uh, with the same, um, you know, we as women have typically been, you know, groomed to become housewives and mothers. And I think we don't really realize how much we know and also how much pride we take kind of perversely in being one, being the ones who know. And I, and I know for myself when I moved in with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, I felt, I kind of felt superior in many ways. I kind of felt like, even though I really didn't want to be that person, part of me was like, well, I, I know how to do this. I know how to do this and my way is the right way. And it's the same with kids. I had the same idea. And until I was, I, I was willing to let that go and be willing that, to accept that there are different ways of doing the same thing and that maybe his way is just different from mine and that it's okay. And then I gave him a lot of room to just do what he felt was okay. And so I had to retreat and just kind of like uninvest myself from a lot of the things that I was taking on. This created the space for him to actually do stuff. Right. And so that balance is really, and, and if we have, if we want the other person to do stuff, but as soon as they do stuff, we are, we, we are still project managing and giving instructions and checking afterwards that it's done to our standards, you know, the other person is not our employee. And so then we introduce this idea of like, I know you don't, you have to execute it according to my plan. And it's just a recipe for disaster. Oh, I think that's so true. Um, yeah, it, I, we had a maybe a little bit of a different situation with our kids being born because my husband was in a, you know, we were in Canada for the last baby and he actually had three months of paternity leave. So I think like as a social experiment, that was so interesting to have three months of time with the baby to really understand the whole, to not think I was sitting at home and eating bonbons all day, the way that maybe he did with our first child when he had just a month off. So I think giving that space, but even if that's not a luxury that's afforded to you because of where you live, um, I, I totally agree. Not project managing and 
letting other people kind of figure it out. There's something yes. to be said for that, right? And also knowing that it's going to be hard because yeah. especially because those are topics, especially when it comes to babies, where if your brain actually thinks that your way is the only way, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable to let somebody else do it another way. And so you, ha- and so you have to accept the discomfort of letting the other person do it their way knowing that there will be benefits that may not be immediate because maybe the baby is not going to have its onesie, you know, in the right, you know, like, um, <laughs> like top side <laughs> up or like some, in some, you know, unusual way, like not buttoned up or something. And I remember nappies, you know, being like, uh, you know, backwards. And <laughs> this is where you have to decide, you know, do I, is it more important for me to validate what, has been done like the fact that something was done or is it more important to me that the baby have his nappy in the right like you know backside you know like the back in the front and yeah. I forget what the expression is <laughs> you know you just have to it's a it's it's a decision that you that you have to make and there is no one decision that is better than the other it's just that you'll get a different result in terms of the message that you're sending exactly I I think everybody, I just want to say that again, because you can either do things the way that you like them done and then be prepared to do everything, or you can be open to letting your partner or your kids figure things out and then have the, the help, but maybe it won't be done to your standards. And I think yes. this idea too, that of right and wrong and standards, so much of it, so much of it comes from our personal history, our family, our culture. I mean, I would say even in same-sex couples that I work with, there's often one partner who carries the mental load, who came from a family very tidy. They like the house a certain way. They like dinner made a certain way. And they... And and I also think that... that. (laughs) Yes. I don't think that it's necessarily a problem because I do think that a project is, I mean, works better if there is a manager. Right. <laughs> and in in my recent situation, we had this situation where uh, historically I carried the mental load of the kids and we did some work at, at our house and my husband ended up being the one carrying that mental load. And it was so fascinating to me to find myself in the opposite situation because I had so much more insight into what goes on in the mind of somebody who does not carry the mental load, like what's Mm -hmm. going on there. And at no point in this project, did I just rest back in my seat and be like, I do not care one bit about this. He's just going to do it. So I can just relax and let him handle everything. It was never that way. It's just that somebody has to take on the role of the leader and the project manager. And at one point, somebody is doing that. And then at other points, it can be a little bit more equal. But yeah. there's always going to be somebody who just feels who has more of the stamina, who has more of the energy to move the project the project forward. Yeah. And if it's you, then who better than you? And I you can feel that. really great about it. I love that because that kind of gives us permission for it to be First of all, mental load necessarily isn't a bad thing. Managing the pro- project is not a bad thing inherently, which I think this particular concept gets a lot of, um, like it's a negative thing that you shouldn't have to manage anything. But as we know, if things aren't managed, nothing gets done. <laughs> and I think where we go back to the idea of choice 
is that a lot of the mental load that we find difficult to carry mm. comes from a bunch of um, of things that we have like must do's that mm. we have just taken on that are not that do not actually um, that are not actually aligned with what we really want. And so this is up to each of us to decide among the one million things that I feel I am doing, what part of it is what I really want to be doing for my house, because I like my house to be that way, for my children, because this is the mother that I want to be or the father that I want to be for those children. And which part is just stuff that I do because I was told to do it, because I think that if I don't do it, I'm going to be judged by other parents, by my parents, by my spouse, by my children. Yeah. And this, this we can work on because at no point is it useful to just do things because you think you have to do them without questioning whether you actually genuinely want to do them and that there's a benefit for you. And so this is the part where there has to be like a, a, a check and balances mm -hmm. thing where you're like, do I, would I rather do it? Or, I mean, if I don't do it, am I okay with the consequences or would I rather do it and pay the price of doing it for the benefit of doing it <laughs> or yeah. is it too costly for the benefit that I get. And so I am all for like minimalist parenting or essentialist <laughs> parenting, <laughs> which is the idea that if there's like boil things down to like, what is really like the minimum amount of stuff that you want to be doing for your house, for your children, like what is, the, what is the minimum, like the baseline? Yeah. And for me, I have really worked to um, to remove a lot of things that I thought that I should be doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it all boils down to mostly like safety and health and a lot of emotional availability. So that's awesome. mostly what I want to provide for my children. I want to be, I want to be really there when I'm there. And I want to listen to them and I want to interact with them and I want to be as present as possible. And that does not mean that I spend all of my time with them because I work and I love working, but it's the idea that I, I think this is really the best thing that I can give them. It's not about like, and sometimes like, I'm, I'm really not very good at keeping them. Uh, like, I don't like to buy clothes for them. So they mostly have holes in their jeans, like at the knee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and oftentimes I have this voice that's like, well, should they be, you know, like they both have like holes at both knees. And I'm like, I'm probably going to get judged for that. And sometimes I take them to school and they're not like super like clean or like <laughs> somebody. They have food on their face. You can't see that no. until the sunlight really hits the <laughs> face. You can't tell. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I think it's just a balance that of course people are going to judge me, but at the end of the day, you know, I would rather have the, the quality of relationship that I want to have with my children. And I really like the quality of relationship that I have with my children. And if I put on top of that a bunch of things that I need to be doing and a lot of judgment of myself and a lot of judgment of my husband, mm. it's at the detriment of like just the quality of being together. Yeah, I think it's, it takes a, a certain amount of courageousness, I think, to really be willing to step back and see what's important to you. And understand that, sure, the world is going to judge. You know, I talk about sometimes how my husband usually makes dinner. He's the one that cleans the kitchen at the end of the day. And people look at me like, did you marry a unicorn? How did you get him to do that? 
And I can see people judging. They're like, well, what do you bring to the relationship? He must be perfect. (laughs) And it's kind of like, well, no, I mean, I, for me, it was important for him to know that when we had children, I wasn't just going to become like the, the standard housewife that, or whatever I thought that was not that there's nothing wrong with that. I think there are people who love that, but I was like, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is work back into my business. Um, you know, I think things should be a little bit more fluid in terms of who carries the mental load in our partnership and in our parenting. And I get a lot of judgment for that, for even for that, like the, the thing that some people would consider an ideal. I see people judge me and I've just decided I love my life. I've yes. decided I it's... Think we, yeah. And I think we touch upon something important is the idea that if you are not going to define your worth by how well you take care of your kids and how beautiful and pristine and well-decorated and clean your house is, then what determines your worth? And I see a lot of women who actually do all of those things mm-hmm. because if they don't do them, they feel like they are failures, like they're not a good person, they're not a worthy wife, they are not a worthy mm-hmm. um And so this is where there needs to be some work. It's like, can you love yourself when there's like laundry all over the house? Can you love yourself when the kids don't have vegetables on their plates? Can you love yourself when you've forgotten all about the assignment that your kid had to return at school? Can you love yourself when people come in and you realize that there is not one clean plate in the house? And if you you can't answer yes to all of those questions, this is your work. Because as long as you define your worth by the things that you do and how clean your house and your children are, it's always like your brain is always going to find something that's imperfect because you can't keep the kids clean forever or the house (laughs) or for five minutes. It's just going to be this this really big anxiety of like things have to be perfect on the outside for me to feel okay about myself. Right. And part of the work that I have done is to really let go of the idea that I had to do everything in the house in order to be valued by by my husband, for instance. And it was just this weird thing of thinking, well, if I don't do it and he does it, then what's, you know, what is the use of him being with me? Like it's that those weird questions that pop up, even though, you know, I'm a complete feminist, I was brought up by a feminist and, and, and then you, you realize that you have social conditioning of like, well, if you don't do everything around the house, like, isn't he just going to find somebody else? Like he didn't marry for, you know, and, and then have to do all of the housework, you know, what's going on. <laughs> and, and so if you, if you notice patterns like that, the idea is to just like, take it all out yeah, and be like, okay, what's, what social conditioning have I completely integrated? And it's only up to me. I mean, the social conditioning is done. <laughs> so, you know, society has done that. And so it's fine. But like, do I want to free myself from that? And what, what else do I decide to think about the state of, the state of my house? I love and it's that. an ongoing thing for me because I think we receive so many messages of like, as women, we have to do it all. We have to be perfect at everything. And so we have to intentionally decide I'm going to be completely imperfect at everything, but I'm going to enjoy everything that I do. Oh, I love that. So beautiful. Um, I'll share with you maybe one of the things that I have, one of the little practices that I've been doing, and I've been teaching this to some of my clients lately, is actually 
using the times where I do feel those things come up or I hear those thoughts or I feel resentful and I feel overwhelmed, I give myself a five minute timeout. I, I definitely suggest everybody try this. I use those negative, feel, negative quote unquote feelings as they're just like a little alarm clock. It's like, okay, it's time to check in. What am I taking on right now? And forgetting that I totally have a choice about, you know, do I need to clean the house, make dinner, go pick everybody up, get something ready to entertain, get the guest room ready? Do I need to do all 10 of those things right now? The only thing I really feel strongly obligated to do is pick up my children, <laughs> usually. And everything else is an option. It's just your thought, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would like to bring them home today. <laughs> I feel like that would be a good idea. Um, some days, maybe I don't feel that way. <laughs> but for the most part, I'm like, that's the thing I'm going to do. And all of these other things that I'm feeling overwhelmed about, I just give myself a few minutes. I, so I, I'll even make a list of the things I feel like I have to do or that I always do. And I just go through it. and. I'm like, can I delegate this? Is this, do I need to do this? The answer is always no. Like that's exactly what you said. Even picking up my children, if I really didn't want to do that, I could call five other people to do it for me. Like there's always an option. And I think one of the, one of my like little mantras or mottos is that these thinking you have to do something and getting uh, tunnel vision around the stress and the anxiety and the resentment that you feel, it cuts off all creative options. Um, I, another coach said this really beautifully, that worry kills creativity. And I just think that that is so true because if you can sit back and take a moment to just remember that everything is a choice at some level, even the things that feel like you really have to do them, <laughs> compulsively have to, when you think that way, it cuts you off from the other ways you could delegate, that you could ask for help. So many women, I think, especially women, forget that you have the option of asking for help. If you do see your partner sitting on the couch, napping while you're vacuuming the crumbs, you could lovingly just say, hey, I could use a hand. We have guests coming tomorrow. Do you mind... Yes. And I think what prevents a lot of us from asking for help is that we have judgment of ourselves for needing the help to begin with. Right. Because if we, again, if we think that we are only worthy, if we can do it all and do it perfectly without complaining and looking really gorgeous and stylish doing it, then if we call up a friend and say, look, I'm really at the end of my rope. Can I just drop off my kids? And just for an hour, I just need a breather. We have all of this drama, like, what is she going to think? She's going to think, like, I'm an inapt mother. It's like, what is she, you know? And, and, and so this is, this is the work. It's like, what is preventing you from asking for help? What do you worry people will think of you? And what will you think of you if you admit that you can't do it all? That you can't, that you don't want to, that it's not pleasant for you, that you just choose not to. Yeah. And and the more the the more willing you are to just live in that space of discomfort of being okay with not being okay <laughs> and asking for help in that space, the more comfortable you will be and the easier it will become 
to just call up somebody and say, you know, I need a hand. Can you do this? Or, or ask your spouse because you won't, you won't have this idea that only perfection is worthy and lovable. Right. And I think the punchline to that too, is that when you're worried about how other people are going to judge you, when you ask for some support, when you ask for help, when you delegate something, you're already living in all of the judgments because all of those judgments are what are preventing you from asking in the first place. You're already thinking those terrible things about yourself. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I think this takes so much compassion, so much self-love to be willing to be in that discomfort. So I'm, I just think this is a very important conversation um, yeah. for many people. And, and one thing that I think we can emphasize as well is the idea that the brain will always point out what we have not done, what we have not done perfectly. And I think it's a really intentional practice to, to try to balance this out by intentionally rewarding ourselves and congratulating ourselves and high-fiving ourselves for all of the things that we do. And I think, you know, if you're actually listening to this podcast, <laughs> I'm sure that you're already doing an amazing job. If you have children, I'm sure that you are somebody who really does the best that you can in every situation. And you deserve your own praise about that and your own like high fives. Yeah. And this is something that that was really useful for me was to really um, own what I was choosing to do and feel really proud that I was someone who would actually do all of those things like for my children, for instance, and I've never been like somebody to really jump through hoops to do like amazing, crazy stuff. But the efforts that I was putting in, in terms of presence, in terms of like trying to really um, meet their needs in the way that I thought was really the most appropriate for them and really listening and really being there for them. You know, I'm like, I, I do an amazing job at that. Yeah. I don't do a perfect job, but I think I, I do a really good job. Yeah. And so maybe they important. don't have vegetables, like like a, a, an amazing variety of vegetables on their plate, like at every meal. And, you know, and this is just, it's, um, it's kind of like a negotiation yeah. with myself. So I will praise myself for the stuff that I do and do well. I will try to improve the things that I don't think I do amazingly well. And I will just let go of the things that I don't even really want to do well, because I don't think that they're like key to my children's, you know, um, happiness or or like life path. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that's a missing ingredient for many people is the acknowledgement of what we do. And I know the brain probably hears that and thinks, well, if I just am patting myself on the back all day, I won't even try anymore. But that's not true. You know, when you think about the last time someone who you really respect gave you a compliment, you didn't just say, well, I'm done. I'm totally done. My work here is done. No, it motivates you to say, okay, where else can I improve? And what, you know, I, one of the goals that I always have for my clients is your own praise becomes the most important and the only validation that you care about. So of course we, we love when the world acknowledges us, but I think the more that your own acknowledgement, your own praise means everything to you, you're going to want to create the best life because you know that the awesome and, and stuff is coming and you reap the benefits. Yes. And what's fascinating is that if you don't believe the praise, yeah. you will just discard it or you will feel like they don't really like you, you will feel 
compelled to correct people who compliment you. Mm -hmm. You will feel compelled to point out all of the ways that you are a failure. Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so true. External validation, if you don't have internal validation, has zero effect on you. And this is why it's fascinating because people, especially like in the workplace, they think that the reason why they're not feeling confident about their skills is because they don't have external validation. And then when they get external validation, they get imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. because they're like, okay, they're saying that I'm amazing, but really, you know, if they only knew what it's really like on the inside. And so (laughs) this is, this is like the ultimate um, demonstration that it's really on the inside that you have to feel okay and satisfied with who you are and what you do and the level that you do it at. Because otherwise what people say will always, you will always find a way to prove what you already believe. Totally. And so this is where the work really is. It's the key to life. <laughs> it's the yes. secret to everything. Absolutely. Um, oh my gosh. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I just think that you are brilliant and wonderful. And I love that I got to hear your thoughts on this in English <laughs> so I can understand. Can How can people learn more about you if they are French speakers? Because I do have some French speakers that listen. Sure. So my podcast is called Change Ma Vie, which means change my life. Uh, So Change Ma Vie, it's available wherever you get your podcast from. Mm -hmm. And the website is changemavie.com, all in one word. And I'm also on Instagram and that's the handle is We Change Ma Vie, all in one word. Okay. I'll put, I'm going to put links to that in the show notes. So if you didn't catch it, I will definitely link to Clotilde. She's just amazing. All my French Canadians lis- listeners as well, you can work with her. Thank you. Her program. So yes, <laughs> if, if yeah, the program that I offer is a program for. Um, so it's a French speaking program that's for women who have children, who are in a relationship, and who have um, professional life, and who are trying to do everything perfectly all the time, and who feel super anxious, and yeah. who have kind of perfectionist tendencies, and I help them kind of. Um, find peace in the middle of all of that. Beautiful. So mental load is definitely something you will hear more about in Clotilde's program (laughs) if you work with her. And I just, yeah, I adore you. I think you're incredible. And uh, your meals have fed my family. (laughs) Your inspiration fuels me and my husband cooks all your food. So thank you so much for being here. I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. That was my interview with Clotilde. She's amazing. I highly recommend you checking out everything she has ever done. (laughs) And I, of course, as promised, will link to her in the show notes so you can follow along with her work. And I really hope that you will take on some of the exercises, some of the concepts that we shared with you today surrounding mental load. For those of you who have not joined my five-day Bring Back the Love Challenge, I do touch upon this a little bit in that challenge. So head over to revitalizeyourrelationship.com slash love dash challenge to sign up. Five days, totally free. It's really awesome. I hope that you have a beautiful week and a beautiful relationship. Take care.